phone. Oh well. Anyways, I screwed up, didn't get the intro going this week. I apologize, guys. Uh, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast, episode 231. Uh, this week we have Matthew Gates with us. How's it going, Mia? Going pretty good, I'd have to say. Um, I know that we're. I'm filling in for a, for a, uh, another client or another person right now, but I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge. You uh you're definitely one of the best sources of, of insect knowledge out there. Um, uh, for those of you guys that don't know, uh, he has a great YouTube channel called Zenthanol. Uh, and then uh, uh, I'll let you uh, pronounce your, your Instagram so I get it right. Uh, I'll make oh, yeah. sure it's description here. No problem. Yeah. So I have the YouTube channel, the science communication channel about integrated pest management called Zenthanol on YouTube. Uh, I'll also be using it in the chat here too as well. Um, so you can tag me using Z-E-N-T-H-A-N-O-L, Xenthanol. And then on Instagram, I post a lot of my other content, and that's called Sync Angel. Sync like synchronize and angel like angel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. And I, I post a ton of my content on Instagram. Those are like the two major places. You can also find me at Sync Angel on Twitter as well. So you've done, you do a lot of, um, you've been doing a lot of cool new content on your, um, your channel lately. Uh, uh, you have been doing a lot of really cool observational videos. So tell us a bit about that. Cause I've been finding those really interesting. Well, I'm actually really glad to hear that. And a lot of people have been saying that lately. Um, I feel like I've been getting a little bit more engagement at least on those kinds of videos, which is great for me for a couple of reasons. The first one is that that observational footage that I put out there, uh, is kind of inspired by the lack of it being there in the first place. I'm sort of surprised to some degree uh, that there isn't more people um, who are doing this kind of thing, simply just posting this stuff. I see it sometimes on Instagram, especially when people are like, hey, what's this bug in my plants? Um, is it a problem? Which 99% of the time people presume to be, which oftentimes it isn't. The two biggest things I get asked about, in fact, are uh, predatory mites in the soil, uh, as well as on the on the leaves sometimes, and springtails in the in the substrate, especially when there's a ton of them and they get um, you're irrigating and they sort of rise up to the surface because they're buoyant. Um, so those things aren't really a problem, but because they're sort of weird insect-looking things, people freak out, understandably. And so if I'm able to keep people from panicking about things that aren't a hard need, sorry, not a huge issue in the first place, then, you know, people don't spend money unnecessarily. They don't destroy their plants unnecessarily. I've seen that happen a lot. Um, so I'm just happy to be able to put out information where people can simply like in a video, like on YouTube, they can, um, well, I can forward them a video or somebody else can. They can say, hey, you think you have rice root aphids? Well, actually you have fungus gnats. Here's a fungus gnat versus a rice root aphid that people um, very often uh, confuse. And then also other sorts of things like just behavioral things like interactions be between biocontrol agents and predators and pests and that sort of a thing. Because ultimately, if you have that footage that you can take a look at, you can kind of become more familiar with sort of the small little idiosyncrasies. And I think that's kind of the devil in the detail 
knowledge that a lot of people just don't have access to. Even research reports are simply like static images almost all the time. Yeah, and, and especially when you're looking at, um, uh, it's one of the things I, I love to point out when we're teaching about mites, when you're trying to identify an unknown mite species, um, it's definitely something that stands out with the predatory mites. You know, they have those finger, the, the, those feeder arms out, they're reaching around, they're looking for something to, to, to attack, you know, whereas the, the, you know, spider mites and other things like that, don't, they're not as skitzy with those, those longer feeder legs. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot that you can gain, um, you know, for, under, for observations um, for, uh, uh, with the videos compared to, you know, the, the pictures, just like you're talking about, but especially with the mites and trying to ID unknown ones, I think it's definitely one of the, the, you know, key things to look for. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, like, and like you say, like, that's the way that I usually interpret it for people. And um, I think it's a really helpful, quick and dirty rule of the thumb, where people can, you know, reference those, that footage and go, oh, okay, predatory mites are fast, like, like you're describing, usually. And uh, if they were herbivorous, they'd probably be feeding on the plant, since they're on the plant. But since they're not doing that, um, you know, sort of your intuition can kind of tell you that by having this sort of like, you know, heuristic. But, you know, there's always um, uh, caveats, right, and counterexamples. I like to tell people that although the predator being fast and mobile and the pest being like slow or sessile or in big aggregations can be usually true in a lot of cases, there are, of course, examples like praying mantises and other ambush predators like um, uh, you know, predatory true bugs and assassin bugs like that and that kind of a thing. And even you even have situations where um, uh, maybe a group of insects that all kind of look the same, um, like for example, the uh, pentantamidae, uh, the shield bugs, those will have some predatory species and some and mostly herbivorous species, but it can be hard to tell the difference. Um, and usually doesn't make or break the situation, but for people who are trying to use, especially like native predators, it can be helpful to have these sort of niche examples. Uh, that especially too, and, and just learning the different mouth parts uh, that you can kind of look for universally as well, especially when you're looking at some of the different assassin bug species. I know here in Oklahoma, we have the giant wheel bugs that will definitely hurt you pretty yeah, good if you pick yeah, them up, yeah. but uh, they are definitely, um, in, you know, in the field, they're very skittish, you know, they, they would much rather, um, you know, uh, walk away from your hand, you can be actively pruning the plant, and they'll kind of work their way away from you. Uh, while you're pruning that plant, they're not an aggressive insect. And a lot of the stuff that people are really afraid of in the garden, uh, widow spiders would be another one that are extremely shy. Yes, they, they are capable of really hurting you, but they, they aren't aggressive at all. And I think that you know, there's a lot of stuff that people are kind of afraid of that they really, if they leave them in the garden, they'll, they'll have a lot fewer problems, uh, uh, even if they are a bit scary to look at. Right. I definitely agree with that. I want to echo that sentiment that like there are a lot of things, luckily in like North America, uh, generally, uh, the amount of like medically significant, for most people anyways, like spiders and other insects, you can usually kind of count on one hand or two hands maybe that are going to be really problematic. Um, but you're right, like, you know, black widows. And here in Southern California in particular, I remember when I was much younger in the early 2000s, I remember reading an article about how 
the brown widow population was actually displacing the black widow population, primarily because the, uh, the weather was even more warm than usual. And that just sort of like, there was no, um, there wouldn't be like the mild winters or like even like more severe winters that can sometimes happen. Since that hasn't happened for a long time, the populations just kind of annually get larger without having that kind of like stopping point, that overwintering and uh, sort of torpor inducing uh, period. So that kind of benefited them. And ironically, um, the brown widows are actually more, they have a more potent venom, but they administer less of it, at least for, at least against humans. And so they're more venomous, but they're actually less dangerous. So it actually works out for us. Uh, at least that's what I read a, a long time ago. Maybe this is old information. I want to I want to say that first, but that's my understanding. So that's a great topic. Um, with this huge cold snap that happened all the way deep into Texas and actually provided some of the coldest temperatures that uh, a lot of these areas have had in quite a long time. Um, can we expect fewer insects this year or at the very least earlier on in the spring, kind of maybe a, a, a little less insect pressure? Or is that something that maybe is a little hopeful thinking? If you've experienced a pretty um, severe winter, I would say that you're probably doing well. I'm sure there are native organisms that are used to overwintering in that particular environment, wherever that might be, just speaking generally. But I do feel like, um, you know, temperate, temperate uh, climates are very, it's a very, very broad sort of um, spectrum. So you got people like me who actually live in like a subtropical environment um, but like for those of us who are actually, who actually get a seasonal winter that's significant, um, I would say that you probably have less of a problem and that allows you to kind of restart. And it's something that I think a lot of people could take to heart. Continuous growth in cannabis cultivation in particular is something that can be sometimes hard to do in some locations, at least, you know, compared to other locations and other systems and situations. So when you do have those winters, you can actually sort of reset you can repair or shore up your defenses, uh, points of ingress, you know, put out a mesh net or something like this or some sort of physical barrier or apply or get rid of um, uh, weeds and other sorts of plants that the overwintering populations might be using as um, uh, cover, you know, to, to hibernate essentially. And if you can do that, or you can also destroy things that are in the ground potentially too. We got to be careful with that because you can also disrupt other problems or other other things that you don't want to disrupt in the in the soil generally. So you do a, a lot of really cool videos and cover a lot of topics other people don't do a lot of. Um, uh, I, I guess we'll just start off one of the more recent ones you did was you did a ton of footage on the rice root aphids. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And because you got a lot of really good footage there. Yeah, definitely. And there's a reason for that. The most recent video that I have out here is about, um, on my YouTube channel anyways, is about rice root aphids and their sort of spring swarming that they're doing right now in Southern California. I didn't really articulate it very specifically in the video. Maybe I should have, but one of the inspirations for that video is the fact that, you know, year after year, I've had, I have a pest primer, a hashtag pest primer video on um, the rice root aphid that I made in 2018. And it's kind of my standard sort of video that I give people if they have never dealt with rice root aphid or if they need a, a, a sort of a refresher on 
what are its hosts, what are its reproductive potentials, what are some of its treatments and things like this. But I've noticed that at least in Western North America, um, basically the rice root aphid populations like to kind of swarm or kind of create the uh, winged forms that colonize new plants um, around the springtime. And I don't know how much that has to do with the, especially in cannabis anyways, um, you know, senescing has a, a factor with most aphid uh, winged morph development, as well as changes in temperature and light levels, just kind of with, like with plants, right? Because they have to follow the host. And, but for rice root aphid in particular, they have a particular, they have a specific lifestyle called holocyclic which means that they alternate between a primary woody host in the autumn and winter and a spring summer host, secondary spring summer host that is herbaceous or usually anyways. And I'm not quite sure which one cannabis would technically fall under if, if I'm being completely honest. Um, but when it's in places outside of its native range, which would be Eastern Asia like Japan, um, the rice root aphid only uh, produces by parthenogenesis. It only produces clonal offspring like a lot of aphids are known to do. In its native territory, it does produce eggs to overwinter. So um, even in here in Southern California where they don't really get uh, huge winter problems in most of the places where the uh, adults can even overwinter or they can just simply live out their lives in greenhouses and outside um, under human cultivation care, um, I do still feel like there is a seasonal kind of lifestyle occurrence or behavioral change. And I was trying to document that in the video and I thought I did a pretty good job because although the rice root aphids were in this area for a, for a while, for several weeks, the sort of winged morph population was low or non-existent. And then suddenly kind of around, you know, the beginning of March, end of February, I saw this sort of uptick, not only in this location, but multiple others. So it kind of corroborated. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I, there's something that I, I researched when I, last year when I ran into uh, someone that had them out here in Oklahoma, and then found out that there's actually a bunch of different, you know, aquatic aphids, there's even a lily aphid that it is very similar looking to the, um, the rice root aphids. Uh, 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 and uh, I got a bunch of great pictures of them. But um, uh, there's definitely ones that I've found, you know, in the ponds and retention ponds outside, you know, the, the facilities that were the same ones that we were finding inside. And, uh, you know, they probably just flew in just like you're saying when they were in the flight form. Um, now in the inside and indoors, uh, I've mostly seen the flight form when they're in pretty high numbers. You don't usually see mm. as many of them until they're in those higher population numbers. But once you start seeing a ton of nymphs and a ton of the the non-winged adults, it's only a matter of time before they start flying around. I was totally remiss. Uh, you touched on one of the important other um, sort of factors. Not only is the change of the host physiology important, um, as well as light levels and temperature, uh, aggregation is, and also I mentioned that in the video, but aggregation is another really important facet of that. So um, definitely, even if it's not quite the right conditions in other cases, the colony aggregation can sort of uh, seem to have an effect. And a lot of insects, and technically really swarming is usually reserved for other sorts of behaviors, if I'm being really pedantic. Um, but like we see this in locusts too, where aggregation seems to have a um, response that changes the behavior significantly. It's kind of 
there's this concept called stigmergy um, or stigmergy. I don't know exactly how people like to pronounce it, but essentially it's this idea that um, sort of, it's like emergent properties. Like uh, you wouldn't be able to figure it out from a droplet of water, how a tsunami works. But if you put a bunch of droplets of water together with other conditions, you get tsunamis. In similar ways, like insects will have like weird situations where if the context is right, if the environment's right, and there's a bunch of them together, hormones and seemingly also like visual cues uh, will change their behavior significantly. So they'll go from being in the locust case and individual feeders to group feeders and then reproduce uh, kind of in tandem. Awesome. So you also do a ton of work on different viruses. Uh, a lot, a whole lot of people actually cover or touch on the different cannabis viruses. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because you, you have some of the best uh, content out there on quite a few of the different topics in that realm. I appreciate that. Yeah, so it's a topic that I feel doesn't get a whole lot of um, credit. I think that we're going to see a lot more of it recently, though, so I'm kind of excited to see people who are plant virologists and other folks to actually do research, and uh, especially on cannabis specifically, and things like transmission rates and what insects actually transmit viruses and maybe what are some things that we haven't even documented yet that we can kind of test for and see. In addition to that, there's also phytoplasmas that are special kinds of bacteria that infect various plants. And uh, unfortunately, cannabis is a host of a couple of different groups, apparently. But to start with the viruses and viroids, we, of course, many people know the hop latent viroid, which is um, more common in hops, of, of course. Humulus and cannabis diverged about, you know, depending on the uh, molecular clock estimate you go with, about 19 or so million years ago to maybe like, you know, somewhere in the 20s, uh, millions of years ago. And that means that they're very, they're very uh, related. And there's a few different pests that are also kind of in that situation. The hoplite viroid is thought to have possibly been, um, or I'm sorry, I'm not, the hoplite viroid is not what I was thinking of there. That was the cannabis cryptic virus, which I will go over. But the hoplite viroid, um, of course, kind of makes sense because of this relativeness between um, hops and cannabis being so close in the cannabis -y. Um, there's some controversy about whether or not, and I don't actually know the answer to this, um, it can transmit through various ways, like wounds are probably a transmission. In fact, it's the main way that it is transmitted, I should say. I meant like wounds that are like open that aren't like cut um, through like mechanical or physical uh, touching. Um, that's kind of what I was referring to. But the main way that hops latent hop latent viroid um, is transmitted is through cuttings that um, that are passed when you use like a blade, like scissors or pruners or something like this. That's the main way. And the latent in its name kind of means that you don't necessarily see the symptoms of colonization until maybe many days or weeks later, which makes it incredibly difficult and confusing to deal with. And when, you know, nurseries and other groups, even residential growers, um, if they contract it in their plants and then they don't see any apparent problem, even if they are highly biosecure vigilant, they won't know because nobody, you know, you, you don't know to check your plants regularly. It's an expensive process and all those sorts of things. And you can't really check without uh, laboratory help. Anyways, 
um, it can become a real, real problem and can affect many, many, many kinds of plants. And indeed, we saw that happen um, in this decade. And so hopefully next decade, we'll have a lot more um, procedures against that. Um, yeah, that's a hot latent virus itself. I did mention the cannabis cryptic virus, which um, unlike the latent virus, viroid does not actually have symptoms at all. It's what the cryptic means in its name. And that one is considered to potentially have been, uh, if we're right about the lineage, it might have actually originally been a fungal pathogen a very long period of time ago. It might have been transmitted through a pathogen that infected the an ancestor of cannabis. We don't know how long ago. Um, and uh, kind of got stuck because it only really, uh, it only um, replicates uh, intracellularly. And so when the cells uh, split, the virus goes with it. It doesn't like try to colonize outside or anything like that, like a lot of viruses do. And seemingly it's harmless. I have a video about that too. And I'd like to do a follow-up on it, but again, there's not a whole lot of research on it. There are also two other viruses that are really important that I'd like people to know about. The first one is the beet curly top virus, which is a super common virus in uh, agriculture. It's globally there. There's tons of different strains and it's got this nasty habit that it shows with the other virus that infects cannabis, the Lez sclerosis virus with what's called uh, recombination or pseudo recombination. And what that means is that uh, the various strains can sometimes co-infect a plant and then they kind of co-mingle and, um, you know, some of the best parts and worst parts get combined and you start to get like replications of new strains that might have a bunch of fitness benefits because of it. Um, we already know that the Warland strain of beet colitop virus has been detected in um, uh, Arizona, I believe, in Yuma and Graham counties. Uh, but it's also been in Colorado since um, maybe 2015, I think. And uh, the Arizona documentation, which, you know, certainly doesn't mean that it isn't anywhere else and probably very much is in other cannabis that people just aren't um, documenting scientifically. But it's, it's very, very much all around North America and various other places. Um, but yeah, so B. virus is a huge problem. Um, I have a video on what the symptoms are and what it looks like in cannabis because it's really important for me to people for for me that people are able to at all scales, both commercial and residential and everything in between, if they're able to detect it, know what it is, then and know what its uh, vectors are for that matter, um, then they'll be able to not spread to other people potentially and destroy contaminated plants if they can. And I think that's really important because the more cannabis cultivators that are aware of this sort of a thing, then I think the better will be in general. And then I also mentioned lettuce chlorosis virus, which is a creamy virus. It also has that recombination ability and uh, it's vectored by the silver leaf white fly. Beet virus I didn't mention is uh, vectored by the beet leaf hopper, which is very common uh, in North America and abroad. It's the only known vector. With LCV, uh, the silver leaf white fly is the only known vector, I believe. And it's um, pretty common in cannabis and other agricultural places. So again, it's one of those viruses that kind of doesn't surprise me along with beet curly top virus because the host range is just so broad. The other thing to consider is that I think for both beet curly top virus and lesclerosis virus, um, they can infect other plants 
that uh, show absolutely no symptoms. And so they can be in like some weedy goose foot that some beet leafhopper or silverleaf whitefly is feeding on outside your property, show no symptoms at all. And then when it changes seasons or the plant gets big enough or the colony grows large enough, it'll just come into your uh, field and wreck your plants. Because neither of these viruses are curable uh, conventionally. Yeah, I, um, the other one I was going to ask you about is mosaic virus, because I see quite a lot of mosaic viruses I go and there seems to be kind of three different uh, common patterning, I guess, with uh, the stuff that I, I've documented at least. Yeah, as far as I know, I haven't seen any recent research that shows that tobacco mosaic virus is in cannabis, but I'm happy to be proven wrong or right on that. Um, I can't look at all the literature all the time. But I do want to say that it wouldn't surprise me at all if that were the case. Um, because again, like the other two viruses, it's got a massive host range. Um, so yeah, I'm, I think you said that you've documented it though on kits, right? Well, yeah, so we've sent some stuff off to um, medicinal genomics. Um, I'm not, we, I, I'm not, I haven't gotten anything back yet, but we've sent stuff off to them uh, to try and, you know, figure that out. Um, uh, the, uh, um, there's a, a group in Israel that actually did a, a paper on it and they, they documented, wasn't it 12 or 14 different ones? Arabis mosaic, alfalfa mosaic, yeah, there's, mosaic. I think there's, uh, a, there's a Hardowitz uh, report in the 1980s. Yeah, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm they had documented a bunch of different species in cannabis tissue, at least. I'm uh, a little bit dubious about that about that particular research report. It's very often cited to me when I say what I just said. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is just because it's a little bit old. Some of the viruses, virus names and um, classifications have changed. Some viruses, and this has been a problem in virus taxonomy for, it's long, for, for since its beginning. Because uh, you get this situation where viruses can either co-infect um, and produce totally different um, uh, symptoms that you wouldn't expect based on what each one of them are like isolated. Uh, so they would count it as a, as a totally different virus when they're not really the same. Uh, you also get situations where we find out that like one virus is a strain of another one actually. And a lot of this has happened because of um, the, you know, uh, increase in genomics uh, technology. So I'd like to see just a, like kind of a follow-up to that because it very well might be true that those viruses do infect cannabis. And I'd really like to see that kind of um, more specifically looked at. But like you say, I'm glad that you were able to send those out. And if you get results in that way, or if you have other information, I'd love to take a look at it and uh, make a point about it. Cause I am writing about, I'm writing a chapter uh, for a book that'll be published by Elsevier um, sometime this year, hopefully. And it's about uh, cannabis viruses in particular. So I'm really looking forward to getting that kind of information and being as up-to-date as possible up to this particular 2021 time period. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, I'm not sure what species of mosaic, but there's definitely a streaking um, mosaic virus of some type that, uh, that, that slowly kills the planet, makes them slowly curl up and, and reduce uh, chlorophyll production and then the leaves just don't grow and then it just kind of, you know, stops really growing uh, all that much after a while. I have some pretty advanced pictures of some plants that were flowered out and stuff like that as well. 
um, that, uh, that that show it. But yeah. Speaking of viruses, there's a um, we mentioned rice root aphid before, um, and we also you also mentioned sort of the um, sort of the relatives like Rhopalocyphum dimphi and um, and, and Rhopalocyphum patty. I think it's another one like the water lily aphids. They um, there's a Rhopalocyphum patty virus that can actually colonize plants and exist in their tissues for like two weeks or so. And it infects rice root aphid and a bunch of other aphids and is transmitted by that virus in particular. Um, it could potentially be a uh, control measure, although it doesn't directly kill the aphids themselves, it really, really screws them up physiologically. So in combination with other things, I wonder if it could be a potential um, biocontrol. Oh, nice pictures. Yeah, that definitely looks um, problematic. Oh, are you talking? I'm sorry. Um, it, it starts to deform the leaf growth and, and makes for much smaller yields and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I have seen it spread for, and I, you can see kind of in, in a couple of grows, you can kind of see the plant, the moms that are definitely had it from, you know, a long, long time, uh, or at least it was expressing. And then you see it in other ones where, um, you know, only the maybe the newer growth has it, or maybe they had pruned and not cleaned their pruners right and transferred it. At least that was the theory that, that I had had um, with, with how some of it spread because some of their older plants don't have it or even the, those same cuts in other rooms um of the non you know uh, majorly infected strains so um you know j just a, a theory where i've seen it pretty heavily in one or two rooms uh over others i will definitely and that's that's a question i'd love to ask you is for something like this if you did know you had it and you were pruning it is the standard um keeping you know three or four sets of pruners in a, in a container of rubbing alcohol and then going one two three four when you're going through different plants and soaking them for a couple of of, of things is that enough to, to work kill most viruses or do you need to do some something more intensive it can definitely work for a lot of viruses but one of the caveats that people should take away is that uh, it doesn't work for rna virus viruses or viroids i should say in this case um, like the hoplite and viroid. Uh, you should definitely be using something else besides alcohol because believe it or not, they can survive it. Um, or at the very least, they can survive it if it's not like a constant thing. Um, I'm pretty sure is the, is, is the case. There's uh, some things like, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the product, like Vicron S, I think it might be called or something like this. I'm blanking on the name. Uh, also bleach. Um, you know, I know that's sort of a contentious thing for a lot of people, considering very understandably that. Um, now, see, this is an interesting picture, but I'll, I'll continue here for the moment. Um, uh, yeah, so like there, there are ways that you can sort of disinfect your your equipment. Um, isopropyl or other kinds of alcohol is really helpful for more um, uh, complex contaminants. So uh, I've definitely seen like sort of uh, variegation like this before. And in fact, I took a bunch of pictures of it at a different location or a, a certain location recently. Um, and I think I remember you even showing me these ones too. 
I'm curious about these about this os, uh, honestly, but um, it could just be a sport mutation. I really don't know, unless these are one of the ones you were sending to um, get tested. No, those those ones were uh, that particular one is from an older grow. I have a I have another one I got sent. I'll have to find it. It's in my one of my decks here of uh, one that's actually real real clear variegation with the ivory and the uh, like split leaves and stuff like that. It was real pretty. Uh, I'll have to find it. But one of the other things I noticed the last year is uh, with the people growing lots of vegetables with their cannabis is cilantro really seems to be a uh, a root aphid magnet. <laughs> Oh, I believe it. Yeah, they do love those herbaceous plants for sure. They also really like, um, off the top of my head, because I just made the video, uh, mountain ash, um, jet bead, following quince, uh, any of the prunus genus plants, so your, your, um, your stone fruits, things like that. Uh, in fact, those are their uh, primary hosts in Japan and in Eastern Asia. Um, Oh, and like the biggest like kind of herbaceous plant that I see feral and wild all over the place in urban settings as well as rural settings um, and even suburban is uh, grasses. They love grasses. Of course, they're called the rice root aphid for a reason, um, but uh, they definitely appreciate a good rye, uh, definitely a good um, a good little uh, grass or, or plant that's just kind of eking out an existence in the cement cracks they'll definitely feed on that. And I've worked with a number of people where they're like, I don't know where I got the rice root aphid problem from. You know, they just started, they just came out one time. I have a story where I was working with somebody in uh, Los Angeles and um, they told me that the, they got rid of some ivy that was on their um, walls. And I don't think it wasn't the ivy that it was the uh, host probably, but it might've disturbed some other grasses and other plants. And when they did that, they said they started getting rice root aphid and they weren't sure what the problem was. Turns out that uh, 10 steps away from their main door, I bent over, plucked a, um, you know, a, a stalk of grass and on it were tons of rice root aphids just chilling out. So sometimes the enemy is right next door and um, people got to look for the signs and symptoms and be vigilant. And your neighbors too. Somebody's got a ton of spider mites or russet mites or broad mites. You know, you need to maybe even try and help them out a little bit to prevent your own stuff from getting attacked. Um, I've also noticed you had a thing about great mealybug lately. It seems like that's the third or fourth insect I've heard from from the you know grape and vineyard world uh, attacking cannabis. Is that should we just start assuming that most of the the grape pests are going to you know potentially be an issue for for cannabis? Because uh, it seems like there's there's a new one every year. It's a good question. Um, probably not. I would definitely presume that uh, because we don't know very much about the pest sort of um, host, like sort of the, the pest range, I guess you could say for cannabis, um, you know, presume that pres presume that things can probably at least feed on it a little bit and jumping off of the uh, sort of virus conversation, which I wanted to say first before we kind of switch gears that I think that the Heart of Woods paper did mention cucumber mosaic virus. And that's one that I think might be uh, a ticket for one of the things that you're mentioning, one of the, um, one of the some of the things that you're seeing here, yeah. or also possibly another place because um, I'm forgetting why I had that thought, but I had it 
before, and I remember that, but I don't remember the reasoning behind it. I think it had to do with cucumber mosaic virus getting folded into another viral uh, taxon or something. Um, we also have the white flies will actively feed on squash, anything in the squash family and cannabis pretty readily interchangeably. Oh yeah, uh, so the, the, the chance of it vectoring is, is very high and there's a lot of different mosaic viruses in the cucumber and, and squash world. Um, and uh, you know, the potential definitely is there. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I, would, I would say that one of the things that I also like to do is help a lot of people, as many people as possible. Um, of course, I work as a consultant professionally, but it's also really important for me, like I've already said multiple times, that people get as much info as possible. So I make a lot of this free uh, IPM content for people on my YouTube channel and on various other uh, platforms. Um, you mentioned that I've identified several sort of pests in cannabis, um, uh, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn a little bit here. I'm sure I'm not the first person to actually see it myself. Maybe the first person to document it uh, on video in the way that I have, which isn't saying much. But I do think it's really helpful that people know things like buffalo tree hoppers that are out there, even if they're just incidental. Because, um, like you mentioned, like with the silverleaf whitefly. Um, you know, that whitefly vectors like 180 known plant viruses at least, 180 plus. And, um, you know, like, so you, you don't know, like a, an insect can just feed on a plant and probe it once and, and transmit a virus, even if it can't reproduce on the, vi on the plant, even if the, uh, you know, if it's a thrips, for example, it can't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it can reproduce or feed for a very long period of time, it can still transmit really easily. So that's just a big biosecurity risk in and of itself. As far as like great pests though, I think that there are a lot of plants, a lot of pests that kind of um, do well and aphids are one of them on uh, woody plants. In fact, the aphid sort of lineage predates flowering plants. So they were kind of um, in their infancy when uh, plants were only um, uh, gymnosperms and, and other sorts of things. And, um, you know, that's when they got a lot of their really good plant immune system um, and attenuating abilities or plant immune system um, blocking abilities or uh, resilience in that way. Um, and then they kind of, um, at least some of the theories about them is that they speciated with a bunch of plants as they developed too. But I bring it up because um, I think some plants, so a lot of pests that go good on vineyards are um, enjoyers of like woody sort of plants and cannabis definitely gets woody. So I feel like there's definitely a sort of a ecological overlap there. I would, I would, I would think it's safe to presume some of that is probably still out there ready to be documented. Do you have any advice for people here uh, with springtime coming up on uh, advice on what they can do uh, the beginning of the season here? Um, I know uh, I'm often a big fan of nematodes, but um, and then before that, do you want to tell everybody um, uh, your consulting service and, um, you know, maybe a little bit about that and, and how to how they can reach that if they're interested and get, you know, have a commercial grow and, uh, you know, need, need help with their IPM plants? Absolutely. Um, what was your first question again? So I remember it. Oh, uh, it's fine. I'll ask you that afterwards. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, your your consulting company and uh, and uh, you know kind of uh, what you, you you provide there for people. So mainly, so Zenthanol Consulting is the name, and I've been working at this for a decade now. 
which is kind of cool to always think about. It's sort of surreal to think about it, honestly, when I consider my own life history and that kind of a thing. I'm really happy that it's something that I enjoy and that I have enjoyed since I was a kid, which is dealing with bugs and uh, fungi and plants and that kind of a thing. Um, so the services that I provide generally are on-site evaluations and sort of an integrated pest management um, SOP. And uh, I also have um, a retainer function for those who need it. Uh, I also help with training as well. I'm very passionate about that. And as you can tell from my uh, continuous references to helping people out and making sure people know about IPM biosecurity and best practice and that kind of a thing. That is something that I'm very passionate about. And so training is a really important aspect of IPM. The, actually, I should say the facets of that training rather. So crop scouting is a big part of it, um, but as well as identification of pests and sort of prevention methods, which I think you were asking me about earlier now that I think about it. So being able to sort of prevent things before it happens and being able to identify sort of problems in your planning um, from various spectra, you know, like IPM isn't just what you do uh, you know, to spray plants or to apply beneficials, although that's really important and a lot of people don't even know very much about that, those facets. But it's everything from the location in which you decide to grow your plants to your financial situation even, um, your resources that you can apply for problem solving. Um, you know, whether you have the uh, equipment that you need to apply things safely or the licenses in order to do that therein. Um, so having that information, which also changes state to state North in the United States of America, but also country to country for that matter. So being, being aware of that is also really important and critical. And that's something a lot of people uh, don't realize too, is some of the, the things that they plan on using for cannabis when you get into some of the more heavy duty stuff, uh, you know, you have to be licensed to, to purchase a lot of it, so. Yeah, state you're in, California yeah. being one that's particularly prickly. Yes, definitely. I love and hate it at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Um, you had um, uh, oh, I, and um, so uh, you also had a thing about lace bugs. I haven't seen too much about lace bugs before. It has a really cool video. Yeah, thanks. So the tingidae is the lace bug family, and a lot of people um, aren't familiar with them. They don't get a whole lot of attention, I feel like, which is totally valid. I think they're kind of an incidental pest, if I'm being honest. But I have seen them really colonize cannabis kind of like out of nowhere. Um, so I think if they're kind of host starved or there aren't, aren't a whole lot of hosts around, or maybe if there's a ton of hosts around and they're all kind of colonized, you might start to see lace bugs. Um, I think the lace bug that I was seeing in the video that you're referring to on my channel was also shot in somewhere in California anyways, probably Southern California. And um, it was, it, I think the, uh, the people over there were calling them, they had, it's kind of, I love it when people kind of invent names for things they've never seen before in general. Uh, I'm a big linguistics and uh, psychology of communications kind of guy. I love that kind of stuff. So uh, people were calling them um, dino bugs. They're calling them dino bugs, I remember. And that was kind of funny because the etymology for that is like, I asked them why they called it that. And they're like, well, they kind of look like hardy and they're sort of like 
just walking around with spots and I'm like I have no idea I guess for the hardiness comment I get it but everything else besides that doesn't make any sense but whatever um but yeah uh they are kind of like aphids but bigger they have kind of a pretty design on them that's why they're called lace bugs um because they're sort they have this sort of like um exoskeleton that is very uh intricate and kind of looks like lace so hence the name uh, so do you have a, what kind of advice do you have for people coming into the springtime for, you know, maybe the home grower that's growing their, their six plants at home? Um, I'm definitely a big fan of nematodes. Um, uh, is there any others that you recommend kind of for people just getting started and um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I like to tell people that um, in integrated pest management, it's not me who came up with this um, and it's been expanded upon quite a bit, but some of the sort of like basic, um, I guess you could say like classes of techniques or sort of schools of treatment that are possible can be kind of broken down into like five or six maybe um, different categories. A uh, big one that people know about, of course, are chemical um, agents. Most people are familiar with those first and there's also biocontrol agents as well, secondly. Uh, but the big ones that people can work on that I think people don't think about too much and don't consider, which could be a great cost uh, benefit uh, for you, are physical controls. Things like barriers, which I mentioned earlier already, uh, netting and mesh screen and things like that, especially not only commercial, but also residentially, you only, if you do it correctly, you only have to really apply it once and you just have to maintain it and make sure it doesn't get uh, damaged. And if it does, you you seal it or you replace it or you do something like that. The reason why I say this is because you can solve 99% of your problems by simply not letting the thing get into the thing. Um, that's the first rule of any kind of security, uh, personal security, physical security, cybersecurity, biosecurity. Um, the, you know, it's, it's called uh, defense in depth. You wanna just make sure there's as much of a barrier um, or difficulty to get to the target. Um, you know, that you can. Speaking of which, you were just talking about uh, attack drones. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, definitely. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, so um, I am a military technology um, purveyor. I think there, there's a lot of interesting concepts that often get used uh, in the military. First, of course, there's tons of technologies from like World War II that have become commonplace now, right? Like radio and that kind of a thing. A World War One, I, I should say. Or, or the interwar period, if we're being pedantic. But uh, that's the thing is that I like to pay attention to those sorts of things, not only because it was a thing I almost, you know, you know, went, went towards. I, I was actually in a military school um, growing up, but I neglected to choose that route. But I've never stopped being interested in that kind of stuff. Anyways, um, nowadays, autonomous drones and um, uh, aerial vehicles that are manned are becoming more um, common. And I was posting on my Instagram about a sort of a defense package against swarms of drones because that's kind of, that's already a problem and it's gonna become a major problem for um, war fighting groups, especially peer-to-peer -peer war fighting groups. Like let's say the United States of America and the Republic of, you know, uh, the Federation of Russia or the People's Republic of China or something like that. Um, some of those might be less peer-to-peer -peer than others, depending on how you look at it. But 
if you, what can you do like aircraft carriers i know this is kind of a weird example but um if you don't know what that is it's like a big ship with a bunch of aircraft on it and, and, and it's usually part of a carrier group with a bunch of other ships that defend it but what do you do if you're um an admiral on this ship and somebody has launched uh 500 missiles at your ship or drones that can just blow up on on impact you only have like i don't know maybe a hundred or a couple of hundred uh, missiles for defense, the, it's not enough. You, you want, and they're not gonna be perfectly accurate. So there's this big problem where what do you do if you have a huge swarm of things that can damage you and you can't get them all with all of your conventional munitions? Well, you can use lasers. That's one thing that you can do to shoot them out of the sky or you use a less expensive missile, but that's hard to do because drones are cheap and easy to produce in mass and control in mass. Um, and there might be electronic warfare that you can do too, but I've gotten really in the weeds there, but do you see where I'm going with this? Insects operate like this, and there's already technologies that people are using in um, the Netherlands, uh, like uh, micro aerial vehicles uh, that scan a greenhouse space for targets and uh, specific targets, by the way, not like any insect or any arthropod that goes in there that it'll uh, attack. And the way that it attacks is not with a laser, but with uh, the physical propellers that it has. So it, it scans the area, finds a target, and it approaches the target, closes distance, and then uses the propellers to um, <laughs> eviscerate it. And then you can just do that anytime you want. You can have it flying around doing a patrol. Um, and I just think that's really innovative. And if people are able to like democratize that technology, uh, you know, if you're using it correctly, if you're using it in a specific area, um, you know, and you're being responsible with it, then that's a great way to replace like uh, chemical agents that are broad spectrum. And I, and I think from an ecological and environmental conscientious perspective, I think that would be way more um, approachable. Have you ever played Half-Life? I know what a man hack is. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking that. <laughs> yes, yes. Eviscerators are, are real life now. Um, I've also played Half-Life Alex on the, on the Oculus, and that was a really great experience, I have to tell you. I'm not a huge fan of the Oculus and where it's going currently, speaking of VR, but um, uh, it was a grand experience. And anyone who's interested in VR, just watch, just play that game first if you can, and it'll blow 90% of what's out right now out of the water. But I'm hoping that in the future, Valve and other groups become, um, if that's the baseline sophistication, that'll be amazing. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Tall heartedly approve of that one. That and Beat Saber and VR Boxing, man, keeps me in shape. There you go, especially in quarantine. Uh, I actually originally got my Oculus um, because I wanted it in case like when I go on to do on-site evaluations and I'm on, in a hotel or I'm in some sort of living space, um, you know, I can use it as a, I can connect to my desktop away from it, which is kind of cool, which is helpful as like a workspace. Um, but also like, you know, I can play around on the, on the airport or, you know, like while sitting down, I'm not one of those people who want, you know, and you shouldn't be doing it in uh, open daylight um, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, right? Like you have the HTC, um, has cameras that are, of course, UV um, sensitive and that kind of a thing, right? Or is it pass-through? Is yours pass-through? I have a Vive, so oh, okay. I have the little things, but what I do is I'll just tuck one above 
like the bathroom door in the hotel room and the other one over like the curtain rod over the window and I can <laughs> set up in there, set my laptop up and I then I can, I can be anywhere and I can get a good workout and I can uh -huh. like, you know, still have, you know, some kind of like release that's like different that. And if I have a really bad day, I can just hop on pistol whipped and, uh, and, and really feel, feel good after two or three rounds of that, you, you know, you're, you're pretty tired. <laughs> I, 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 um, I definitely got a workout with, uh, I was playing, um, the Star Wars VR, so the, there's like a three part story, at least on the Oculus. Um, and, uh, you know, it was on rails and that's okay. I've played on rails games on, in arcades and things, and I'm, I'm used to it. It's not my preferred sort of game type, but, um, uh, I was pretty impressed, honestly. And like, again, kind of way, it's way less superior to like, uh, Half-Life Alex and that kind of a thing. But I was uh, there's this training thing that you can do with the lightsaber. So like as if you were a Jedi or a pat or a Padawan, I should say, and uh, you've got like the training drones and other sorts of things that shoot at you or they move around and you have to like deflect it with your light, you know, with your lightsaber or um, attack close range uh, while standing still uh, or or like really in a very short, very small space. And so uh, I definitely felt like I got a good workout that for sure <laughs> i love i also like uh, elite dangerous just doing space trucking doing cargo missions with the vr and i have the the voice thing so i can talk to it and it'll control the ship and all that it's super super immersive and then uh, just google vr being able to see places that i don't oh yeah. i haven't seen and being able to just be at street view and, and look around especially if you have kids and stuff like that for education oh, and, yeah. and seeing different places that you maybe can't afford or maybe politically can't can't ever see um, it, it's a super, super cool app that, that just kind of gives you an experience that's, that's different than anything else. And I've had so many cool people um, that maybe I've been able to show them where they're from or something like that. And, and you know, really, really gave them a cool experience. But uh, we had a couple of uh, insect questions here. Was, uh, 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 was Broad or Russet Mites talked about yet? What treatments are good for a home grower? Uh, I hear a lot about heat treatments and hot water dunks. Uh, have you spoken about that at all? Uh, no, not, or I definitely have, uh, not on this podcast, but I definitely have on my YouTube channel, uh, Zenthanol. I also wanted to say that I do use, I have used my VR to check out locations uh, that people give me, like clients uh, for biosecurity. So I can literally be there at like, like at the address level or something and look around. Uh, in some cases, not all cases, but that's been a fantastic experience for me. And it's not perfectly accurate, of course, but it's just one of those things that can be really helpful from a professional perspective. Anyways. Moving on, broad mites. I actually have a recent video about broad mites on cannabis in particular, showing what the damage looks like because um, hemp russet mites and broad mites look uh, very similar damage-wise. They both have a phytotoxic saliva and that's why um, they kind of, and also thrips and other insects can sometimes cause like weird leaf formation and other sorts of things. And because they also tend to be, um, a lot of them anyways, vectors for viruses, that's also incredibly confusing from cannabis because we don't know what what the virome of cannabis is right now. So is it the toxic saliva? Is it the virus? What's going on? You know, uh, it's a little confusing right now. But broad mites, um, one way you can easily tell uh, the broad mite from the russet mite, even though their damage is sort of similar, is under a microscope or under a really powerful hand lens. I can see them if I know what I'm looking for. I can see broad mites and russet mites in, 
might be able to too, people who are listening or watching. Um, so don't let somebody tell you that you can't. But what I would advise people do first, especially if they already see the damage, um, which you can see in the footage on the video, which is really helpful, is that you can put under a microscope maybe 60 times or something like this and check the damage. Broad mites are sort of a um, oblate spheroid. They're sort of football shaped. And um, females are kind of rotund or kind of like um, sort of a larger kind of around the midsection. And males have like a very sort of gaunt kind of um, tapered uh, like back end, but they move pretty fast for their size. Uh, they're pretty active usually. So that's one way you can tell them. And they also have eggs um, that have small little tubercles that look like white dots in a very regular um, sort of pattern on their eggs. So that's one way you can tell them really easily. And I can't see that on uh, with my hand lens. I can only see that on a microscope. Don't broad mites uh, kidnap their girlfriends too? And, so broad, and yeah, so broad mites have a really, um, uh, actually not that all unique of uh, uh, behavior where males will, um, tardigrades actually have this too where females will stay what's called ferrate. In, and that's when uh, a female, uh, or not just a female, but that's when an organism sort of like molts or changes its exoskeleton or something, but it stays inside of the like shed skin, kind of like as like a second layer almost and that for like protection or for dormancy or something like this. So the females, so the males will seek out females when they're like developing, like they're basically in sort of like a, um, a pupa-like form, a sort of intermediate form. The males will find them through a chemical sense, pick them up with their special thread feet, and then they'll carry them around, which another to another location, possibly even another plant even. Um, so that's one way you can also tell them different uh, is that they have this sort of, you'll, you might see this like T-shaped sort of bipartite organism walking around where like part of it's upraised and that's the female. Um, and so uh, what will happen is that the female will stay sometimes inside the case, uh, even after developing, and then the male will guard the female until it comes out, and then the male will mate immediately, and then um, the female will be able to produce more uh, males or females, because broad mites are haplodiploid like a lot of arthropods, meaning that unfertilized eggs become male and fertilized eggs become female. Uh, so females also will mate with their progeny. So you only need one female to get a colony going and they reproduce really quickly. Hemp mite, on the other hand, is sort of a worm-like body. It's only got four, although I don't expect people to see it on a microscope, they've only got uh, two pairs of legs, so like four of them. Um, and they kind of have this like snake-shaped body, sort of worm-like um, vermiform is described as. And uh, they- I like uh, to say have, they look like a pizza slice. Yeah, definitely. They have like a triangular kind of cone, like kind of like those bugle chips, I think of oftentimes, because they also are like ridged, the chips are, and sort of the mite is also kind of like that, the idiosoma kind of body part. Um, and uh, their eggs are different. Um, so if you're not seeing those tubercles on the eggs, then you're probably seeing hemprosomite. And if you're seeing the, very obvious resident mite body form that most resident mites have, then you will definitely have hand resident mite. It's also a specialist. Uh, broad mite is called polyphagotarsinemus latus. That means many eater, 
Tarsinemus, which is the family Tarsinemidae. Uh, so they feed on all kinds of things and they'll even travel on silverleaf whiteflies, specifically wax. Uh, they're attracted to the wax and they'll latch onto their legs and other body parts for like hours at a time in order to get to a new host. So it kind of, you can get like a three-part whammy with a silverleaf whitefly. You might be unlucky and get a silverleaf whitefly that's viriliferous for the lead sclerosis virus and has a broad mite on it. Those are russet mites though, yeah. Yeah, so that's, so russet mice, as you can see, have sort of a um, sort of worm-like body that kind of tapers to a point. And they're also, they can also be kind of active. They can kind of get going, but they're sort of, they sort of waddle. They're not as, they're not nearly as quick or as active as broad mites are. And uh, the hemp russet mite is a specialist. It only feeds on cannabis as far as we understand it. And um, what did I want to say about that as well? Uh, you can see it's about the same size as some of the immature trichomes to give people a size, you know, reference of size. Oh yeah. And you can also see some of the eggs there too. They're like circular. Um, yeah. So that's a really a good, good image for that. Yeah, I just, I just pulled this off of Google real quick just to show what you're talking about. Definitely a good idea. So yeah, so they're, they're oh, um, most russet mites are actually not a pest. There are some others, other russet mites that are pests of other plants too. Um, but most russet mites that we know of, which is not a very well studied group to be honest, especially until recently. Um, but uh, usually they don't cause huge problems for their hosts. They're usually very kind of innocuous. Um, but some of them cause galls or blisters on the plant host which is why they're sometimes called gall mites or, or rust mites or things like this. Uh, but except for those versions, you know, most rusted mites are hanging out, not doing anything. So the pest uh, species that we know of are kind of um, uh, aberrant in that way. We had another person in, in check. I'm currently battering spider mites using Dr. Zymes and DE. Um, Dr. Zymes and DE is probably not going to do a, a great job of getting rid of your spider bites. So you'll have a much better, uh, at least I've found a much better response rate with some, uh, depending on your temperature, Persimilis or Californicus, uh, uh, something like that, depending on, on which uh, mite is going to work out better for your temperature range. Uh, Persimilis for most people for indoor and then uh, Californicus for, for more outdoor, but uh, um, maybe you have a, a, a different opinion on that, but I think that's uh, they seem, you know, as long as you hit them, you know, on, on a regular schedule, uh, they seem to just do a really good job of, of wiping them out pretty well. I would agree with that. I think I'll echo the sentiment. I love to advocate for Phytocilius persimilis for spider mite control, but I do have a video on my channel that goes, I actually have a whole list of videos about spider mites in general. Uh, there's also the clover mite, which doesn't spin webs usually, and, uh, or at all, I think. Um, and is also a spider mite that people can sometimes get, especially uh, if you have clover um, or grasses in your area, which most people do. But spider mites, yeah, persimilis mites are great, californicus mites are great. Um, the other sort of uh, type three mites like uh, uh, like uh, Swirsky and Cucumris, I wouldn't rely on. They might nibble on an egg or a nymph here or there, um, or a larva, I should say, but uh, they won't really uh, be a huge, um, uh, I guess you could say, uh, hard counter. They're kind of a soft counter, whereas Persimilis and Californicus are more of a hard counter. 
What are, what is your opinion on the um uh oh what are they called um, the spider mite destroyers the ladybird because oh, I've yeah. had them a couple of times and um I, I've only had really good luck with them in, in warmer stuff when I was using them with the uh, Californicus and, and hotter house greenhouses they seem to tolerate the heat pretty well um, compared to a lot of the other options uh, I don't know if you had any other feedback on that. Yeah, um, Sothoris punctillum is the spider mite lady beetle, and I'm a fan of them as well. I just feel like the uh, economy of scale is so much higher for the persimilis mites. In my experience, it's just usually easier and simpler for people to use them, but they're definitely a valid option. Um, in addition to that, there's also the spider mite fly Feltiella acarasuga, which I have a uh, video about as well on my YouTube channel. Um, and I like them too, because of how voracious the larvae is. I was actually just watching that video recently. I sometimes watch my own videos to get an impression of where I've been, how I can do better. Um, and also whether or not it's kind of a relevant thing to talk more about. And um, I remember that uh, the larvae of the spider mite fly were, um, at least in one laboratory study anyways, much more voracious than the persimilis were, I think. I think it was persimilis that they were compared to. But um, yeah, it becomes a question of how much do you want to over-egg the pudding and how much of a layered system do you want? I am an advocate for holistic, multi-tiered um, sort of perspectives on, on your IPM strategy. It's good to have multiple layers attacking multiple life stages of whatever you're dealing with. And if possible to maintain it prophylactically and sustain a population of whatever that biocontrol is um, on or in or around where you need it to be. Um, and in the case of spider mite predators and other like carnivores uh, that can be very difficult or impossible to do without uh, prey. Whereas things like the type three predatory mites are more generalists um, like Cucumerus and Swirsky, and they all go after things like thrips and uh, silverleaf whitefly and other whiteflies. And they'll go over and they might even eat some moth eggs while they're at it sometimes. So I'm a big fan of using generalist, but um, specialists when kind of uh, hyper-targeted can be very useful. That's something about the persimilis a lot of people uh, forget about uh, when they're talking about it is is persimilis almost exclusively feeds on spider two spotted spider mites and 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 not much else it will occasionally feed on other stuff but it, that's that's its primary food that's its number one thing it's looking for so um you know that that's a, another reason why they are uh, you know such a, a good uh, a good thing to use um we had another question on where is it here uh, one second. Uh, grats to Gavin Bradley. So Steve, I got a job at university because of your videos. Thank you so much. Grats, buddy. Um, we had someone else uh, say, there was another bug question here. Uh, what are, what, do you have any predictions for anything that you, you saw a lot last year? I know two years ago, I saw a ton of Septoria. Last year was a little bit drier, but we saw a lot more. Um, botrytis last year than, than anything else. Um, do you have any uh, kind of uh, magic ball predictions for what we'll see a lot of this year for, or maybe something that we'll see uh, more of documented? Definitely. So one big one that occurs to me when you say that are the viruses we just talked about and also hemp phytoplasmas. So phytoplasmas are bacteria that colonize the phloem channel or the sap channels of plants. And they're known in North America, India, China, 
or those sort of biogeographic regions. In other words, kind of everywhere, and they, they sort of colonize a bunch of different kinds of plants, kind of like the um, tobacco mosaic virus we discussed. So for that reason, it's kind of unsurprising that they also infect cannabis. And they've been documented for a while now, I think since like at least the sort of 2010s, in cannabis in North America, for example. So those are something that I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop on. Also the B curly top and lesquerosis viruses, I think are going to get worse before they get better. And they're going to become not cryptic before they become, you know, before that happens. So I think that that'll probably happen sooner rather than later. Um, I really hope that that doesn't happen, but I feel like it will, uh, especially when I consider how easy it was for hop latent viroid to kind of um, hit all the various places it did. In addition to that, there's also one other pest that's a big problem in the East Coast right now. They'll probably already know what I'm talking about. It's a spotted lanternfly. Huge problem in Pennsylvania and various other states in the East Coast. And it does feed on cannabis. It does come from, uh, you know, um, sort of Central and Eastern and Southeast Asian um, areas. And so, so does cannabis for that matter. It's thought it might have speciated there, in fact, uh, from a co-ancestor with uh, hops. So if that's the case, and it does feed on cannabis, and it's been documented uh, in, um, in uh, Chinese research. So uh, I don't, and, I've, and I have people who have shown me pictures as well. So it's definitely confirmed. Whether or not it'll be a huge problem will, will totally entirely depend on whether it's able to colonize effectively other parts of North America in the next few years, because we're we're desperately working on biocontrol agents and other sorts of um, control measures for viticulture and other sorts of agriculture, like especially in orchards. So I feel like if we're, depending on how things go, we might be able to have a few things kind of ready um, and waiting uh, and sort of more established than they already are. Um, they're also really large, so they're kind of conspicuous. You can see them but they can exsanguinate a plant. Uh, if you get too many on a tree or other kind of plant, they can literally feed all the phloem sap and eat their body weight uh, multiple times per day, potentially, at least a lot of these hemipterans can. And uh, not a lot of things like to eat it because it's kind of bitter. It has alkaloids in its body, and particularly when it feeds on Chinese sumac, which is also really common as an invasive sort of weedy plant that's choking out native uh, vegetation in North America and other places. So, you know, in, co in combination with those vectors, I think it could be a really huge problem. What, what kind of alkaloids? If they're psychedelic alkaloids, I think this problem might solve itself pretty quickly. Oh, <laughs> I wish. Maybe if you eat enough of that, <laughs> maybe it'll be a deliriant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're very bitter, uh, whatever they are, and things don't like to eat them. A lot of them don't, but I've seen pictures of like mantids and other things taking a bite. Um, but uh, currently we're looking at, uh, there are some nymph parasitoid wasps. And so uh, I should say wasps that attack the nymphal stage, but they're kind of, and I talked with Mark Hoddle, who's a uh, University of Riverside um, extension agent researcher for these biocontrols on uh, crop talk media. Um, several months ago at this point. It was a very illuminating conversation. I even got to ask him about cannabis and where, whether he thought it would be a huge problem. Um, and he seemed to think that uh, it may or may not be, if I remember correctly, but um, I just presume that it might be. And I also want to say that I do have to get going in a few minutes. I think you said 90 minutes. So I did plan. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. 
Oh, that's totally okay. But if we have some lightning round questions, I'm happy to get to them. Oh, um, okay. Um, let's see if there's any others here. Oh, there was one other question this guy had that was pretty good. Uh, do you have, uh, how do you introduce beneficial pests to fight off bad pests without unbalancing your local ecosystem? I think that was a pretty good question. It's a very good question. It's something I'm passionate about because as, as much as I like broad spectrum predators and generalists and even like Blueberry bastiana that feeds on tons of different insects, I'm also ecologically concerned with the ramifications of their of their poor mismanagement in the same way that I would be for chemical agents. So one of the ways that you can do that is to, you know, kind of grow your plants in a way that's cordoned off from the rest of the environment if possible, either indoor or in some other sort of way that sort of corrals them and make sure that you're applying them responsibly. Uh, some level of naturalization may be possible or has already happened in some cases for biocontrols. And to a certain degree, you can't really control that. And it's a question of, sort of human interest over others. Uh, biocontrol companies and sectaries, and I won't make any friends by saying this sort of a thing, they do like to sort of um, promulgate this idea that they are uh, partners with nature or, or in some ways they are sort of, it's a natural uh, control. And to some degree it is, but to some degree it's not when they're invasive or exotic. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, a great way to, to wrap up the show. Um, why don't you tell everybody again about uh, your uh, your consulting company and, and how to find out more information about your YouTube and your Instagram and, and your other awesome places that you put content out. Absolutely. I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to it again soon. So if you are interested in some help with integrated pest management at any scale, really, but I do tend to focus on commercial scale applications, you can Find me on zenthanol.com. You can also find me um, on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, as well as on Instagram at SyncAngel, also on Twitter at SyncAngel for that matter. And um, I'm very excited to work with people in the cannabis space and also other agricultural crops as well. And I'm very happy to help you out with your problems if you have them, especially uh, identification work. Thanks for coming on. I got one last question for you here at the end. What do what do you what do you think ladybugs are actually good for? Because I haven't. Uh, uh, what have you found something that they actually work pretty well for? And so, ending on a complex question, I like it. I'll say it this way: most of the time, uh, a lot of people don't know that some of the lady beetles that are found, like Harmonio axirotis, the harlequin lady beetle, are actually alien invasives that will feed on native lady beetles transmit a uh, pathogen to them and generally be a problem for the natural uh, ecosystem. They even bite people, so they're just not great. Um, but there are other lady beetle species that are good. And the main thing that they're good at, uh, the generalist ones that mostly people associate with aphids, they can be very good at that. The California lady beetle, the seven spot lady beetle and other ones. Um, but there are other lady beetles there's a Delphasis catalinae that feeds on the silverleaf whitefly. There's the Stethorus punctillum we mentioned, the spider mite lady beetle. And there's also Cryptolamus montrosary, which is the mealybug destroyer that feeds on mealybugs and also a few other things too, but mainly those. So lady beetles uh, as a family, the coccinellidae have fed on tons of different organisms, including plants and fungi for that matter. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And uh, 
uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on and talk to us about uh, uh, all the awesome insect knowledge that you have, man. Oh, well, I'm very happy to do so. Anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> all righty. Um, well, uh, uh, that was a really good episode, everybody. And um, uh, you guys can find uh, more episodes over at the Growing With Fishes podcast. And uh, uh, on the SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, uh, YouTube, and um, all the different places. And you can find out uh, if, if you want more information on aquaponic cannabis, you can find that over at apmjclass.com. And if you need nutrients, you can find that over at apmjnutes.com, uh, N-U-T-E-S.com uh, for those. And you can get the link to the description. All right. Uh, thanks a lot. And we'll catch you guys again uh, next week.